we are one. And as I say, the one of one of the purposes of us doing this series is to show the unity we have with every generation of those denominated by the word Baptist. We are Baptists, and there is a unity among us as to certain distinctive doctrines that make us Baptists. We are now down to that one. We are, we covered first and more fully the doctrine of uh, that Baptists hold to the sole authority of the scriptures in all matters of faith and practice. And then now we have taken up the case or a Baptist, Baptist church having a regenerate membership, only a regenerate membership. Now, just for the sake of the uh, sermon audio, those that are not present here, uh, I want to highly recommend uh, Brother John and I were talking after the class last week, and, and I told Brother John, I said, you know, for those who do not hold or have a question in their mind about this matter of a regenerate church membership only, that that is the teaching of Scripture, I said to him, for those people, I have only three words. Baldwin on baptism. <laughs> we have republished that book Baldwin on baptism. And, uh, that is, as far as I'm concerned, the go-to place and the final word on this whole subject of baptism. And, uh, but not, not so much mode as the subjects of baptism. The, who is eligible and therefore who is in the visible church. Baldwin on baptism. That is the definitive word on that. <clears throat> we have republished that book and it is available through any internet source. So, we take up this subject again today, picking up again on this matter of the case Baptists have for a regenerate church membership. Uh, I'm taking up a reading at page 20 of the reprint of uh, Jeter's uh, Baptist Principles Reset. In that book, Jeter says this, Having made these general remarks, we will now proceed to prove their correctness. John the Baptist, the morning star of the new dispensation, was an eminent reformer. He preached repentance and the necessity of godly lives. He laid the axe at the root of the trees, which did not bear good fruit, and proclaimed that descent from Abraham, which secured all the benefits of Judaism, would avail nothing 
under the reign of the Messiah. Now note that statement because that is pivotal. That is singular. That is important. John the Baptist came along preaching that to the Jews, preaching to the Jews that their descent from Abraham had no value for them at all as to participation in this kingdom of the coming Christ. That these were two distinct things John preached. Jeter says he baptized the penitent for the remission of sins, but he organized no church among his disciples. His mission was to prepare the way of the Messiah by awakening an expectation of his coming, making ready a people to receive him and introducing him into his public ministry. And having done these things, his work was ended. So John the Baptist did not organize churches. He didn't build churches. He didn't organize churches. But he preached repentance. And he preached that your citizenship, membership in the Jewish state did not secure you a place in the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, there's this debate, and we won't go into it. There's the great debate whether... John's baptism was New Testament baptism or Old Testament, whether it was a part of the old economy or the new economy. And you will realize, I know, that uh, in the Old Testament, there were multiple baptisms. We speak of baptism, we think of only one baptism, the church's baptism. There were numerous washings in the Old Testament economy of things. So uh, that's thus the question comes, well, was John's baptism just another of those many baptisms of which the Jews were very familiar? <clears throat> and of course, Jeter is making the case that it was not, that John came preaching a repentance for the kingdom of heaven which was not being heard among the Jews, and that baptism with John marked you as being one who had received this new message by faith. Uh, so the case is made for John's baptism not belonging to that Old Testament economy of baptisms, but as being unique. Now, it is also unique, so it's unique if you're looking back into the Old Testament. But it's also unique if you're looking forward, because as Jeter points out, he he formed no churches. His baptism was not connected, as it is with us, to specific congregation of covenanted people. So John's baptism was, and many writers make this point, uh, John's baptism was in many ways very unique. It was a unique baptism that 
reflected neither the Old Testament economy nor the New Testament, strictly speaking, economy of the church. So, then he goes on and he says, the personal ministry of Jesus was preparatory to the constitution of churches. His preaching was eminently searching and fitted to reform men and make them spiritual and devout. But during his life, no church was organized. And his disciples were subject to no discipline and their labors except so far as they were directed by his personal attention were without concert. So they were the Lord Jesus, and of course you remember he baptized none. <laughs> he baptized none. So we're just moving through here in the New Testament, the subject of baptism, because we we uh, are pressing for this matter of a regenerate church membership. John baptized, but he was baptizing on profession. So there was the necessity, unlike Israel of old, to be regenerate, to be in the kingdom of heaven. Then the Lord Jesus comes along, he baptizes none. But of course, his message was the message of repentance and faith. And so a regenerate church membership is presupposed there in the, for the future for the apostles to lay that foundation. Then he says, Peter says, on the day of Pentecost, after the ascension of Jesus, the apostles by the descent of the Holy Spirit were fully qualified to carry forward and complete the work that John and Jesus had begun. The first church was formed in Jerusalem. And this soon became the mother of other churches in various countries. We have at present no concern with them. But to show that they were composed exclusively of believers. Converts to Christianity. Or persons who made a credible profession of piety. Now. Jeter says, all right, we're going to look at these New Testament churches, the first of them, the very first ones. And he says, what I want us to see there in the record, and I too want us to look at the record and see it. What I want us to see there is that they were, without exception, clearly uh, composed of converted believers. The mother church, says Jeter, and I put that word in quotes, he didn't, but I did. The mother church was clearly a spiritual church as contrasted to strictly a national church. That first church was a spiritual church. The 120 disciples who held a continuous prayer meeting in Jerusalem were its nucleus. Now somebody, uh, if you will, uh, 
uh, Ian, if you'll look at Acts chapter 1 and read verse 13 and 15 for me. And uh, Elena, if you would look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, be prepared to read that for me. All right, read Acts chapter 1, verse 13 and 15, please. Yes, sir. 13 and 15 is what I... 13 through 15. I want to read 13 through 15. I'm sorry. When they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simeon, Silotes, and Judas, the brother of James. In verse 15, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of names together were about 120. Okay, so that's the evidence that there were about 120. They are continuing in prayer, in that prayer meeting in Jerusalem. Then to those were added later 3,000 believers. Read Acts 2.41. Acts 2.41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Okay, now hear the wording of that. They that received his word were baptized. There's no indication that anyone else was baptized. This is the mother church. I'm using that in quotes now. Jeter's words, not mine. The mother church, Jerusalem church, started out with 120 who had received the word and had believed. 3,000 were added. Then verse 47 of that same chapter, Acts chapter 2, tells us that there were daily added to the church but only such as should be saved. And then to this company was added Joseph's surname Barnabas, who signalized his conversion by his liberality to the cause of Christ. That's in Acts chapter 4, and verse 36 and 37. Then after the death of Ananias and Sapphira, the ungodly were deterred from joining the church. But believers, Acts 5.13, if you want to look at it, believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes both of men and women. Added to the church, believers. Nothing is said about children, infants, families, Believers were added. Then in Acts 6, the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Obedient to the faith. So this was, says Jeter on page 22, the true church. Are we not justified in affirming that it was composed of believers and believers only? There is not the slightest trace in the copious inspired record 
that this large, primitive, model church, that they were, that there were any unconverted seekers or infants or hereditary members. The church was organized under the immediate guidance of the Holy Spirit and according to the will of Christ, and we have a full and infallible account of its membership, which I have just pointed out to you and walked you through, for the instruction of church builders in all ages. This is the model, believers. Later on on that page, Jeter says, had we no other proof, had we no other proof that the primitive churches were composed exclusively of believers, the history of the church at Jerusalem should fully satisfy us on that point. The next page he says, in the Acts of the Apostles, covering a period of more than 30 years and recording the labors of the apostles and their assistance in founding and edifying churches in a large part of the Roman Empire, there is not the slightest evidence or shadow of evidence that any persons were admitted to membership in the churches except on a credible profession of faith and retained in them by apostolic sanction without lives in harmony with their profession. That's it. If you look at the New Testament pattern, that is it. That is the New Testament pattern. Anything else that you bring to the table would have to be brought to the table from somewhere else because it is not in the scripture record. Now, Kroll, taking up this same subject in his book, The Church Members Manual, on page, page 41 says this. Uh, it's under the section three called Of Whom True Churches Are Composed. He says this, professed believers in Christ and no others were admitted as members in the apostolic churches. This might have been expected from the nature and object of our Savior's mission to set up the kingdom of God in this world, the subjects of which must be born again. The words of uh, John in John chapter 3. Must be born again. My sheep, he said, speaking to the Jews who suppose themselves God's covenant people in virtue of their pedigree, he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. He that believeth not is condemned already. The only people on earth who retain any of the elements of true religion were sunk in mere ceremonial worship, trusting to external righteousness. He therefore required a change of heart and faith in himself as Savior in all of the subjects of this new spiritual kingdom. 
Crowell says, as might be expected, therefore the primitive churches were formed of believers only. The 3,000 persons who on the day of Pentecost gladly received the word became disciples of Christ, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking bread, breaking of bread and in prayers, and all that believed were together. We're told, next told, that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved or such as had been just described, all of whom had been baptized as a solemn renunciation of their Jewish prejudices, their former hopes, and their sinful practices, and the joyful profession of their faith in Christ. When a fierce persecution was kindled against the church of Jerusalem, they were all scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the word. None but true believers would have done this. None but true believers would have done this. Paul says further, our Savior has also warned his ministers and his people not to receive into church membership nor to the privileges and ordinances of his house unsanctified persons who live devoted to worldly appetites. Give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. There's a tremendous principle there, and Crowell doesn't go on to enlarge it, but there's a tremendous principle there that can be applied to multiple things, but certainly not the least of which can be applied to church membership. Not to cast your pearl before swine, and not to give that which is holy to dogs. This cursed this cursed practice of infant baptism has done exactly that it has given that which was holy to dogs that is given them the right to call themselves Christians when in fact they have no part in it he says as much Crawl does in verse uh, chapter the page 43, he says, the history of the papacy and of every ecclesiastical body which has violated this rule affords melancholy proof that such warnings are needed. Baptized unbelievers aptly compared to dogs and swine have not only trampled church privileges under their feet, but have rent the children of God more than all the unbaptized infidels and pagans together. And if you doubt that, <laughs> you have to just, just a, 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 a cursory reading of history. Fox's Book of Martyrs and multitudes others, Brother John, brought us a lecture of one case, just one case of those baptized unbelievers. Baptized unbelievers. Let me read that again. 
baptized unbelievers, aptly compared to dogs and swine, have not only trampled church privileges under their feet, but have rent the children of God more than all the unbaptized infidels and pagans together. Believers were baptized as a pledge of their faith in Christ and as a symbol of their spiritual change previous to their becoming members of the church. The Apostolic Commission was, Go and disciple all nations, or bring them to become believers. Then baptize them in token of their union to God and to his visible church. Next, teach them the commandments of Christ. Baptism is joined with faith. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. These instructions the apostles obeyed both in the spirit and in the letter. He says further, it is evident therefore that the only proper members of a church are baptized believers in Christ. The scriptures make no exceptions on account of age or sex or nation or civic rank. Nothing is said or intimated in the New Testament respecting infant members of churches nor are the children of believing parents described as sustaining any relation to the churches different from that of other children or as any more entitled to the ordinances or subject to the discipline of the church. None. None whatsoever. You will search in vain to find any connection in the New Testament history of churches establishment of churches, you will find not a word supporting anything but baptized believers who have been regenerated and made credible testimony of that regeneration. In conclusion, Kroll says, as Christian churches, as Christian churches then, should always be composed of baptized believers only, and as the nature of a church requires that all its members become so by their own free, intelligent act, the initiatory rite must be performed on the same principle. It matters not what has been done in the believer by parents or guardians or sponsors in his unconscious infancy the knowledge of which may have come down to him by tradition, by testimony, or by parish records. Nor with what sincerity, nor in what form it was done. None of that matters, he says. Since it was not his own act. No owning of the covenant can make the act his own. His duty is to believe and to be baptized for himself without which he cannot be a proper member of a Christian church. Now, all of that is simple, I know. 
almost simple to the point of tedium, but it is critical for you to understand that as Baptists, we believe in a regenerate church membership. Now let me just expand that thought one little bit, and then we'll close. We as Baptists, at least nominal, those that named ourselves Baptists in this country, have always held this doctrine. But then we've, in our times, we have violated not by receiving into membership those who are either unbaptized or were baptized in an in, as an infant. We don't do that. But we do have churches who receive people into membership wholesale who have no credible testimony of regeneration. They are not required to demonstrate in any real or practical way, in any real or practical way, they're not required to demonstrate that they are in fact believers. And that's as much a violation of our Baptist principles as it is to receive a person who's had infant baptism we have transgressed in this matter largely in Baptist churches, I say nominally Baptist churches across the country. The, the Armenian doctrine uh, uh, doctrine of free willism and so forth and especially hyper-evangelism and uh, all that came along with all of that, that that has all driven Baptist churches to take into membership folks who who have absolutely no credible evidence, or at least have not been required to demonstrate any credible evidence that they have been made believers, and that destroys the nature of the New Testament church. It robs it of its authenticity, its purity, and its strength by filling the pews and the roles with unregenerate membership just as much as pedobaptism does that. Okay, we'll leave the subject there for now uh, and uh, open it up for any discussion or anyone might make a comment further on this matter. We will be covering more. We will be saying more about it.
Yes. Right, right. 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 Take the whole gospel requirement out of it. That was a tremendous statement that Crowell uh, makes there in the middle of page 45 concerning the gospel. Churches of his day were receiving them 
in droves. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because of the dilution um, of the gospel even in his own day at that time. Well, the doctrine, the Sandemanianism, the doctrine of Sandemanianism so permeated our doctrine that we, when you teach that all that's required for salvation is a decision of the mind. If, if all that, that's Sandemanianism boiled down to it. That, that is the doctrine of Sandemanianism. The belief that salvation is nothing more than a decision intellectually of the mind to, to accept as facts the gospel story. If that's all that's required and then someone just steps up in one service and says that, they agree to that. If you believe that salvation, that that's the, that's the essence of salvation, then what's to prevent them being baptized right away and received into the church? Well, the problem is that that's not, it's not that simple. <laughs> it's not that simple. It's not as simple as an intellectual decision. So what's flawed here in the church membership structure is more fundamental than that. It's the doctrine of salvation is erroneous. And that faulty doctrine of the gospel or salvation generates faulty membership in these cases that we're talking about. Not pedo-baptism, but Baptist churches receiving people that ought never have been received, but that's based on their false doctrine. Spurgeon, in his, and I've read the accounts, there's a couple of different books. One book I know of has been published that are the accounts of the interviews taken from the notes. Uh, in Spurgeon's day, in his church, uh, one who made a profession and wanted to apply for membership were brought before a board and examined privately, separately, at a different time. And then they were examined again, and then eventually they were passed off to the elders for examination. So there were two or three stages of examination, and as Brother John has pointed out in the case of this Second Baptist Church or, or this incident, uh, there were a number of those after were rejected. A number of those were put on hold. They were referred to further teaching, teaching, uh, whatever, whatever, whatever. And the people who did the examinations kept notes of these interviews. And this is what I've read the book. There was a publication of these, some of these records, some of these interviews. And it's quite interesting to see some of the reasonings of these men who were doing the interviews and keeping notes, some of the reasoning they had for why they rejected their application. That used to be common. In Spurgeon's day, that's how it was done. That was a standard practice. 
certainly in his church, but in many, in all, well, I won't say all, I can't know that, but in the overwhelming majority of churches, that was a practice. There was some method of examination, and uh, that's long since gone. But But it's gone because of the doctrine <laughs> of salvation. If you believe salvation is nothing more and requires nothing more, than an intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel. Well, then anybody could just jump up and do that in one hearing. And boom, that's it. If you equate that as salvation, then they're in, and now they're eligible for baptism and church membership. But it ought not to be. It ought not to be done like that. And multitudes reside on the roles of quasi-Baptist churches because of that methodology. Any other comments? Exactly. Exactly. The largest congregation in Coweta County. Well, I suppose I could use the term congregation. They actually don't use that term and they don't want it. The largest religious body in Coweta County has no role. I know this. I went there. I talked to them face to face. I was told specifically we have no membership role. They've done away with that entirely. 